Shama say hello, 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 and welcome back to Gateway to Anime. How are we all? What's going on? Yeah, good. Sorry to abandon you there, but it's in theme. Look, we'll see. It is in theme of what we are talking about this week. Now, young Brett unfortunately cannot be with us today, but in his stead, we have a distinguished guest in Mr. Gerald Lillywhite. Gerald, how are you? Hello. Thank you for having me. I'm very well. Excited to be here. Excellent. Excellent. Well, this week we are talking about what many people would consider to be the anime of them all. One ring to find them, et cetera, et cetera. This is, of course, Neon Genesis Evangelion. Now, this one has a reputation. It was one of the first animes to break in the West to a huge degree. It basically broke what was the internet at that time in its still rather embryonic form in 1995, but it blew up that entire community and world. And it is, to this day, one of the most, if not the most important anime ever made. So we thought we'd get Gerald in, because Gerald, you're a writer, correct? Uh, that's right. I'm a development producer and freelance writer. Indeed, indeed. Gerald and I go way back and we've worked together on several things and it is wonderful to have you in here to collaborate on something we both care about very, very deeply. Totally. I think we've had some great conversations over the journey about many anime, but this one in particular. Oh, yes. So, Gerald, I'd like to ask you, give us your origin story. How did you get into anime? What, what started you down this deep, dark path? Right. Well, like many of the boys and girls uh, our age, it was Pokemon and Dragon Ball Z on Cheese TV. Oh, yes. Um, that was the first brush with uh, the form. But what I put to you is that it felt like Pokemon wasn't so much a Japanese popular culture, but worldwide culture at the yes. time. And that my first brush with anime as its own separate thing didn't occur till I was like 19 or so. And it was walking the aisles of my local blockbuster video and, you know, flirting over a period of time with this strange section in the corner full of the, the <laughs> colorful covers and cartoon faces. But one day I uh, picked up this DVD case entitled Cowboy Bebop, oh. brought to it by its uh, the silhouettes on the cover. And I thought this looks a bit different. And I hired out all six volumes and just had an amazing 10 hours of my <laughs> life just having my mind blown by anime. Yes. And it's all been downhill from then. No, yeah. <laughs> I was saying you know, just earlier, Gerald and I were discussing how a lot of Australians in Perth in particular had a brush in with that little section in Blockbuster. Just myself as well. That's where I kind of expanded my horizons of anime. We were talking about how there's just so many weird ones we've all somehow watched just because they obviously all ordered it in. Like, yeah. Yeah, Get Back at Black Cat. Like, probably not very good, but still at the time I was like, hook it to my veins. Like, yeah. <laughs> we'll, take, we'll take anything. What do you got? What do you got? What do you got? crazy like uni student who's obviously studying film who worked at Blockbuster who we all owe our anime addictions to. I want to yeah. interview that person. I know yeah. who was that person. If Lionel's listening, <laughs> I appreciate you everything you did for me. You, you shaped the minds of a generation. So well, well done to you. Just some stoner. Like, I just love it. There was never any judgment and I appreciated that. Absolutely. And Planet Video as well, of course. In, of course. In Mount Lolly also. It was an uh, institution. Hell of a place in, in Perth. And shout out to that now defunct wonderful place, which also shaped the mind of a lot of hipsters <laughs> moving into their twilight years. Let's be all move towards tragic middle age. Speaking of existentialism, <laughs> let's talk about 
Neon Genesis Evangelion because it is the existential piece in anime, really, and one of the most striking bits of existential art probably made in the last 30 years, I think. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a fair call. I think it wears its themes on its sleeves quite unapologetically, mm-hmm. which for a form that up until then was very entertainment-focused. And I think what is immediately different about Neon Genesis or certainly why it was uh, such a departure is that it's, you could say it's the first moment that anime became an auteur kind of form. Yes. Because its creator, Hideaki Anno, this is very much a piece from him and it can't be separated from him in no. a way that many anime become ubiquitous with a lot of different different versions of that same story in that form. Absolutely. It's, it's funny because what's interesting about this anime, it was one of the first anime originals. And as we've said on this podcast several times before, most anime are adapted from manga or light novels, which are auteur-driven and are always from the mind of one person. However, animes are always, of course, a team, a big team of people who come together to execute someone's vision. But this was one of the first anime originals where it was, of course, there was still a team of people at Gainax, which is the studio which produced this in the 90s. But it is very much Hideaki Anno, and it is basically synonymous with his entire person. I've got some quotes to bring out of him later about how personal this was to him. But it's quite an extraordinary piece of work. So, Joe, why don't we just start? Why don't you tell people who haven't seen Neon Genesis? By the way, those of you who have seen Neon Genesis, you're still going to get a lot out of this because we're going to drop a lot of quotes, talk a lot of history about how it was made, his mindset, some of the more interesting things. So if you are a big Neon Genesis fan, you're still going to get a lot out of this episode, but we're not going to spoil anything for those of you who we are trying to initiate to watch this wonderful piece of art. So, Gerald, why don't you start with a synopsis for everybody, please? Sure. Big picture. It's the story of Shinji, who is living in a world that has been changed by a cataclysmic event. He lives in a in a world that has been changed by attacks by this being called angels, big monsters that are coming from from space, essentially. Um, And Shinji arrives in Tokyo 3, one of the last bastions of humanity, where he's reunited with his estranged father, who is the head of an organization called Nerve that exists to try and combat these angels. And Shinji is directed by his father to jump in a giant mech, (laughs) uh, a big robot, and to fight these angels as humanity's last line of defense. So at a surface level, it's a boy in a robot fighting monsters, but it goes uh, so much deeper than that. Oh, yes. So, I mean, the mecha genre in and of itself is something very specific to anime, and it is a massive massive thing. I mean, Mobile Suit Gundam, of course, which is a big inspiration for, for Hideaki, I know, when he made this show. But the, the mecha anime was its own beast and it was a massive thing in Japan at the time. And he basically came along and made what is probably, if it was to have continued along the track that it started out as, the best mecha anime of all time. But then he's like, what if I deconstruct this entire genre? and make it all about something that you didn't think it was actually about. And that is what makes this so special. So, Gerald, why don't we start talking about that? Sure. I think Hideaki Anno as a creative is not just an interesting story in terms of a person coming to terms with their craft and artistic vision, but certainly 
also as a snapshot of anime culture at that time in the late 80s and early 90s. Absolutely. Otaku culture, if you will. That's right. And so, you know, in this post-war Japan, Hideaki Ino would have been on the tail end of that post-war generation. There were certain negative social externalities that were appearing in Japan for the first time. And, and the otaku culture, these... Uh, the nerd culture, so to speak, was being taken to such extremes, you know, as your classmates were graduating onto college and stuff, um, Hideaki Ino and his otaku friends were still very, very focused on anime and nerd culture. And so in the late 80s, in Osaka, already feeling at a distance from the rest of society because of this pursuit, him and his friends start this little collective to make anime. Yes. And Hideaki Ino then goes on this journey where he is trying to propagate this culture. He's trying to make otaku culture and to, and to live in it as much as he can. And he's very successful at it. Miyazaki, uh, Miyazaki gives him his first gig working on Nausicaa. Yes, he, he actually did the, uh, the God Warrior. That That's was right. his animation. He it was, was tasked with that. The most difficult part of the entire um, piece, such was Miyazaki's level of faith in his skills. They're still friends to this day as well. That's right. And uh, at the same time, that collective out of Osaka made the intro for an anime convention called Daikon. Mm. And there is something that has become a bit of a trope in anime at the moment, which is where there's a, a big atomic bomb s detonation and you see the blast wave go out and then you see the buildings kind of flash and disintegrate. Yes. And obviously that's reflective of this, you know, post-war wound in the Japanese psychology, but Hideaki Ino was actually the first person to draw those kind of images. Yes. And it really resonated with not just otaku culture, but broad culture in Japan. Yes. So anyway, he's a wonder kid. He's in this culture that's kind of separate from the rest of society. He's on the rise and then he falls into a deep depression. Mm -hmm. For four years of his life, he can barely get out of bed. Yes. He doesn't know what's going on. He falls out of productions. And Neon Genesis Evangelion is a piece of art that is directly linked to that period of his life yes. and the reckoning with what it meant as he took on this next big project. Him and that group of people, Gainax is what they formed. That's which right. Which is the production company which made Neon Genesis. But they made a few things beforehand. And again, he sort of had got the Wunderkind kind of treatment he was all all coming up and they made two things which kind of bombed uh which which is what actually sent him into this deep deep depression for four years but then during that time as you say he started to have this constant feeling over and over of don't run away yeah. you can't run away that's right that was what was running through his head during this deep dark depression for four years where he basically never left his house it was yeah. pretty pretty serious stuff I will just say about that depression that it was the, as you say, the contribution of those commercial failures of Gunbuster and the other project, Nadia, I believe. Yes, and, um, and Royal Space Force. But at the same time, he was also becoming increasingly disillusioned with this otaku culture that he yes. had committed his whole life to. And he was disillusioned with this post-war Japan where it wasn't socially acceptable to have sex in your own house, but people were reading porn on the train. Yes. And he's been quoted saying this to, to a certain degree and realizing that his isolation from people that he was responsible for by immersing himself to this degree in, in imaginary worlds. And so there was this moment of reckoning for him for that four years. Absolutely. And then from this horrible place in his life, comes Neon Genesis Evangelion. And it's such an interesting bit of work because there's, of course, that wonderful meme that goes around, get in the robot, Shinji, which yeah. basically just means fucking stop being a whiny little ass and do your job. Yeah. But of course, that's obviously very reductive. And right. 
But a taco culture is, is very fascinating because it's, it's like most things, Japan was sort of onto something before everybody else and way more intensely. Like nerd culture, as we've seen in the last, ever since Gamergate, all these sorts of things were online 4chan, which is of course actually where in the early days was basically an anime forum. I don't want to throw anime under the bus there, but uh, that's how it started. It of course distorted itself into what it is today. And of course the internet was still burgeoning at this point and figuring out what it was and fans of things which were niche were finding each other and themselves and becoming a more collective voice. And Hideaki was very much part of this. The sort of guy as well who would turn up to work at Ghibli <laughs> with no shoes, smelling like shit, and like muttering to himself and drawing mecha in his free time. Like he's very much a, a very prototypical kind of auto genius type, mm. you know, a, almost a, a caricature in many ways. But he is one of those Van Gogh type figures. He lives it. He absolutely lives it. And this otaku culture is something that he's obsessed with and he's very defensive of as well. But what he actually does in Neon Genesis is critique and kind of write a love letter to otaku culture and obsession and nerd culture, which in the West is now blown. It's, there's always been nerd culture in the West, obviously. But it is now something which is becoming much more mainstream. I mean, the gaming industry alone destroys movies. It's not even close anymore. Sure. You know, and the nerd culture is absolutely huge. It's, it's basically mainstream. But he was part of a time in Japan where it wasn't mainstream. And he was part of a very select group of people who, like most nerd culture, and it's ubiquitous in anime, are very defensive and fervent about what they think is right and good. And this is what he comes up against a lot and what he critiques a lot in this show, which makes it so, so interesting. Because obviously, as we were saying before, it's a mecha anime, and as Gerald described, it's about a kid who fights aliens, essentially, with his really, really fucked up father and two other uh, young girls who are also in with him. And they're all just trying to figure out who the fuck they are yeah. and what it is to be a person and a human and an adolescent, which is hard enough as it is without trying to save the earth and coalescing with some kind of robot, which you need to have some kind of natural proclivity towards. And we won't spoil too much. It's much more than just getting in a robot and piloting it. It actually is that you need to have some kind of connection to it. That's right. And I think what I think what Hideaki did so well is that he gave that community the tropes of the genre. Yes. He said, here is a boy, here are the special magical girls around him, here is the stern authoritarian figure in the father, here is the penguin that lives in uh, your guardian's <laughs> house just because. And so he's positioned an audience to have a particular kind of experience. And for the first half of the show, you still get that experience. All of the things you want from a giant robot fighting an alien, you get. Oh, and yeah. it's done extremely well. But what he also does is he gives you characters. He takes these archetypes of characters and gives them a depth that anime hadn't seen. Each of the characters have their own deep trauma. For Shinji, it is his relationship with his dad. For Asuka, it is her relationship with her deceased mother and Ray is a whole other kettle of fish about <laughs> how her introversion. And so from the get-go, he's taking something that's existed and taking it further. Absolutely. And interestingly about that as well, there's a very stark shift that happens in this show, right? As, as you just said, the first half is basically a pretty standard mecha anime. Second half starts to get real philosophical, real psychological, real existential. And actually what happened was in episode 16, Anno was blocked and unable to go further riding the ambiguous character of Ray, who just mentioned. And we're not going to talk too much about Ray because it's hard to talk about Ray without spoiling what it is about her. But she's basically a very detached, cold, kind of distant character who's a bit of a recluse. Uh, not a hikimori, but very reclusive in her 
dealings with people. But Anno asked a friend for a suggestion on some reading to help him understand mental illness because he just couldn't quite figure out what to do with this character. And the book that he read blew him away. In this book, it was a poem that was written by a person who was certifiably mad, which brought him close to understanding Ray and then himself. The book was a Besatsu Takarijima, a volume of mental illness. And Anno, who had been struggling with depression his whole life, but didn't have the language or the understanding of it, nor had he even accepted that it could even be a clinical diagnosis. During the middle of this show, which he was writing, you know, episode at a time, essentially, he realized, oh my God, I have depression. Yeah. <laughs> I did the middle of the fucking show, which is why there is such a stark change mm. in the middle of this series. And it really takes a very left-hand turn. And for me, for the better. Yeah. I think I think you can see it in the show at the beginning there is the question through Shinji as you said the theme he brought into the making of the show after this bout of depression was I can't run away yes and so Shinji instead of being this prototypical anime protagonist who can't wait to get into the robot mm. is sitting there going I can't run away I don't want to do this do I have any worth but I can't run away and so that's the question and then at the midpoint when he read this book he had his answer of like what does that mean and it takes it to lengths that you know even for seasoned art house viewers <laughs> is, is an extreme um, what what was your read when you watched it for the first time charlie when i watched neon genesis for the first time i was probably nine years old that is too early to be watching <laughs> it, this yeah i was watching it on sbs i think actually it was on the late mm -hmm. night yes, and um, i just had no idea what was happening but i remember thinking it was kind of cool but I had no idea. So I rewatched it again when I was 14, actually, when I went and I hired it out. And I loved the turning point. But my boyfriend, who I was watching with at the time, hated it. Mm -hmm. And he was apparently in the majority of yeah. the kind of viewership of thinking that it kind of jumped sharp, like, oh, they ran out of money and like they did all this and he couldn't continue the story. And it's like, I remember thinking, without this turn, this show doesn't quite because i mean i'd argue that at the start it still has got elements of this in it oh yeah like it's not just a mecca it's so much like christianity is shoved down your throat all of that <laughs> symbolism everything like that like, like post-war it is so obvious in this show so it always kind of to me had more to say and then when it did have more to say i thought that was cool but people have really gone the other way oh. and said that actually including like they've redone it so there's actually the kind of re do of the show in the films they've added together is a different kind of ending same tone but it's kind of yeah i argue that that ending he did second time around was way more savage it's kind of a fuck you to everybody true so yeah. you should contextualize that without yes. ruining the ending yes. part of what makes neon genesis so infamous is that pushing off from this midpoint where things become far more dark apocalyptic psychological he really takes it to the furthest point of its natural conclusion and it's not a traditionally cathartic dramatic conclusion the way that we've been conditioned by popular culture to expect and so remember that he's making this for the most fervent fan base in the world yeah. mm -hmm. and they did not like it oh no and there were letters and there were death threats and there were Many. bomb threats and after two years or so of a little more of defending his work he finally made two additional films to uh, recontextualize the ending which doesn't really change it as much as expand and he does not pull any punches. In fact, <laughs> he throws them even harder. And oh. it's the most baller thing of all time. Because you can imagine how you just buckle to that pressure. People yes. are like, make your art better for me. And he went, no. Yeah. So it's fine how it is. Fuck you all. I yeah. think that people have come around to 
his endings though. I yeah. think it's actually aged to a point where people I think finally understood. And I don't know if we could yeah, it's a, it's one that it's like the Sopranos. You know, like it's, yeah, it's sure. like those ones where now people in hindsight are like, actually that was brilliant. But at the time when you're like, what happens next? Like what's it like it's kind of a It doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that's the best part. And that's what I think the fact that we're still twenty five years later talking about this ending. And that there's, you can go online at any given time and get into an argument right now if you want. It's that hectic. And that is what's so wonderful about it because we're still talking about it. And that's art. Absolutely. I think you've hit the nail on the head because doing some reading for this podcast, one of the things that's so clear to me is how far and wide it has connected with people. And by using the show to reconcile his own experience with depression and by so faithfully depicting it through the character of Shinji, it's connected with a lot of people who came to their own realizations about their mental health or came to new reckonings about their relationship with their own depression through watching this show, which for a piece of art is incredible. I mean, I watched it again for the first time in many, many years. Again, I was like you, Charlotte, I watched it in my, my teens and still didn't really fucking get it. And I watched it again last year when it dropped on Netflix. And it kind of fucked me up a little bit, you know what I mean? <laughs> like it's it's pretty rare that something like that actually really, like it was affecting my daily life. You know, I was like, depending on which episode I've watched, I'd be like, oh man, like this is, this is staying with me, you know? And it, not many things fucking do that. This particular show, I think, is one that I know a lot of non-anime fans still like. Yes. So it's one that has heaps of reach for, and I think that's what you guys were kind of saying. And because also the art style, the way it looks, the sound design yes. is beautiful. So everything about it is so stark and kind of, it just draws you into that tone. But you're right, it totally sticks with you. And it's, I had a friend recently who's having a hard time ask me about an anime he should watch. <laughs> and before I could think I'd written Neon Genesis Evangelion as like a, you know, just a quick answer like I do to everyone who's asking for an anime. I, like literally three days later, I just got a message saying, why would you do this to me? <laughs> and I was like, I am the worst friend ever. I am so sorry. So like, sorry. But he loved it still. He's like, I yeah. love it, but I just sunk in. He's like, I really could lean into I the existential crisis. I was like, oh. So, I mean, watch with caution in that way. Oh, yes. Watch yes. Of course. Some trigger warnings. But yeah. I mean, it should be said that it's one thing to say, well, I'm going to write a show about my depression, which, you know, is a very ethereal, difficult thing to communicate. And uh, the other reason that Neon Genesis has been so enduring, I think, is that from a craft perspective, was just totally able to back that up. Yeah. There is so much going on in the the dramatic execution of this show and the mise-en-scene and his full conceptualization about how he was going to make the audience feel his feelings. That PhD on PhDs have been written about this show yeah. and the well just goes so so deep and you know even at a superficial level one of the first things i think that you notice when you watch this show as another departure from the more usual entries into the genre is the pacing and his yes. use of stillness mm -hmm. and so in every episode you know that shinji's going to fight one of these monsters one of these angels but instead of playing that for excitement every single time in the way the genre demands Hideaki Inno plays that repetition to mirror the malaise that Shinji's going through in his life. And so he starts to mirror the, the pain of these fights with Shinji just staring at the ceiling, listening to the same two tracks on his disc God, and over and good. over with these voiceovers that are still questioning his worth against stills of nostalgic scenes. And it just has this metative cutting that evokes very viscerally that malaise that that character's feeling it's it really is 
you know, the more just even talking about it now and just casting my mind back even to as early as last year, it's like, fuck, this thing's good. Oh man. <laughs> you know I've mean? like, got like images in my head, like, yeah, the ceiling with the discman and also just the train and like all oh. those like stunning kind of that kind of really mundane but beautiful scenery that is juxtaposed completely with the insane mecha fights that happen. Yeah. Yeah. That almost seem like the mecha fights are less interesting. Yeah. Somehow. And as you're saying about stillness, Gerald, there's a there's a very famous scene in this, which I'm going to defend right now. There's a wonderful YouTuber named Super Eyepatch Wolf who talks a lot about anime and many other Sorry. things. Yeah, I know. He's, he's obviously a nerd, but he is one of my favorite YouTubers. And he has a video entitled In Defense of the Elevator Scene. And I couldn't agree with him anymore because as you say about stillness, Gerald, there is a scene between Ray and Asuka. And this isn't spoiling anything. It's, it's out of context. But there is a scene in which these two have a lot to say to one another at this point in the show. And they share an elevator together. And the scene goes for about 53 seconds and they don't say a fucking word. Mm. And it's a pretty much a still shot. Obviously the sound is going of the elevator descending. And it's one of the most excruciating and to me extraordinary bits of filmmaking, animation, whatever you want to call it, that I've ever seen. And a lot of people hate it and kind of, oh, it's so stupid, it's so crazy. I'm like, no, the tension is the beauty. And the fact that it's not being said, and when, when it finally breaks, by the end, you want to screaming at the fucking screen, mm. going, ah, someone say something, you know, <laughs> like, and that's, sure. it's just fucking brilliant. It's, and that level of detail and those sorts of things where he just subverts your expectation and almost kind of plays with the audience, you oh, know, like. And, and critics will say, oh, well, that's just throwing in an avant-garde device there. But the whole controlling to show the theme, like, yes, existentialism, but what version of that? Well, the, all the characters are chasing connection. Shinji, all he wants is to reconnect with his father. Ray wants some connection. Asuka wants a new way to find connection. And they just all struggle so much. And so that scene within that context, although the character tension is built around, like, Shinji just needs a hug. Well, someone just give Shinji a hug. <laughs> you know, it just, you just feel it in your gut because it's not two people not talking to each other. It's two people that desperately want to connect, being held back by all of the things that stop human beings from connecting. Exactly. Yeah, I remember once we were at the pub together and we're talking about Neon Genesis Evangelion. <laughs> I think you looked at me and just said, we are all Shinji Akari. <laughs> I was like, we are all Shinji <laughs> I mean, this, this show just speaks to, again, not without spoiling it, but it just asks these questions of what it is to be human. What is it to connect? What is purpose? What is life? And these are just hard, hard things to grapple with at uh, the best of times without also having to um, have giant robots. And, uh... It's actually a trend now of having kind of like mecha anime that are not actually mecha anime. Like I was just thinking Code Geass. Code Geass, I'm yes. like, that's completely not a mecha anime, but it is. Like there sure. are fucking True. robots, but True. it's a psychological like cat and mouse game. But, yeah. That it is. It's, it's also a bit of a... A metaphor for imperialism, but it's. No. Uh... Yeah, no, but what it's... if Japan <laughs> were the victims? <laughs> but what if we were not the? Uh, I mean, speaking of Japan, the other like amazing thing about um, Neon Genesis is that it is such a good snapshot of where Japan was in the the late nineties. And yes, he was reflecting this uh, otaku anxiety, but also, I mean, this was a post-war period where recession was hitting the traditional role of the salary man was changing you had the kobe earthquake that shook the nation you had the sarin gas attack yes. that totally shook the japanese idea of itself and then as you mentioned before this trend towards hikikimori and people that had given up in the way that the show is searching for connection these were new individuals within japanese society that had given up on connection yes i want to just give a quote here from i know himself where he says Evangelion is like a puzzle, you know? Any person can see it 
and give his or her own response. In other words, we're offering viewers to think for themselves so that each person can imagine their own world. We will never offer the answers, even in the theatrical version. As for many Evangelion viewers, they may expect us to provide the all about the Eva manuals, but there is no such thing. Don't expect to get answers by someone. Don't expect to be catered to all the time. We all have to find our own answers. Evangelion is my life, and I have put everything I know into this work. This is my entire life, my life itself. <laughs> it's like, Sam, are you available for dramatic readings of quotes? <laughs> like... I'm available for hire if you'd like. <laughs> and, and what's interesting is if that's where he ended up, I've got a quote from where he was at the beginning. Please. So you can track. It's a quote off. <laughs> uh, mine's not going to be as dramatic. <laughs> Anna wrote, I tried to include everything of myself in Neon Genesis Evangelion, myself. A broken man who could do nothing for four years. A man who ran away for four years. One who was simply not dead. Then one thought, you can't run away, came to me and I restarted this production. It is a production where my only thought was to burn my feelings into film. I mean, see, this is the thing as well. And I think and as a writer, you would understand this. And you know, as a musician, as an actor, anything, any artistic pursuit, the key is you are bringing yourself. You are the work, right? No matter what it is. You are making something of yourself when you create art. And for someone to bring this much of themselves and to be able to execute it so brilliantly with such high level of craftsmanship is what we all aspire to make and do in, in art, whatever creative art form you practice. So to me, it's just, this is such a great example of someone who really, really brought themselves and exposed themselves, stripped themselves bare for the world to see so bravely and so brilliantly. And that, at the end of the day, it's why we all love Van Gogh. It's why we love Jeff Buckley. It's why we love artists who are able to just be like, here's me on a fucking plate. Take it as you will. And of course, they all have the craft to back it up. But at the end of the day, you see through writers who are unable to give themselves, you know, or, or right. actors or musicians. And it's more contrived and it's 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 false and or, or they, they lack this clarity of voice to communicate it. But this is an example. And even though it is, you could argue it gets confused towards the end. He was confused. Yeah. Depression's super confusing. But he beautifully illustrates that to the audience. And I think that is why this is so fucking good. Yeah. To me, the definition of a, of a master is one who has collected the craft through hard work and certainly with Anna you can see in his trajectory up through Gainax and his mentorship under Miyazaki that this was a young man that was putting together the toolkit yes and that's one half of it but the other half is as you say being able to access the feelings bringing yourself what's the point of difference and, and those two are not natural bedfellows the no. more you intellectualize things the further you're taken away from the craft and then you're making a show about existentialism. So that's pretty easy to intellectualize pretty quick. <laughs> yes. And that's what makes this show so special is that he just brings these two sides of himself together in such a successful way. Absolutely. And, and so like, that's my main pitch when I like people like, so why should I watch this? I'm like, oh, it's just a guy at the top of his game doing something you've never seen before. Yeah. You know? And who doesn't want that in any, <laughs> exactly. in any form? Exactly, you know? dude. Yeah. Exactly. So what other shows would you recommend like Neon Genesis Evangelion for people to watch in general? Battlestar Galactica. Actually great. Uh, yeah. I think a perfect parallel into the Western storytelling medium. It's different, but it's still heady, psychological, religious uh, connotations and whatnot. In the anime world, Serial Experiments Lane. Mm -hmm. 
uh, even Cowboy Bebop, it's different, very different. I can see how you slid from one to the other. They're, you know, they're contemporaries of one another. Absolutely yeah. fantastic. But Charles, just before we move, just before we finish up, I just want to get your opinion on something about, it's obviously quite a psychosexual piece, mm. Evangelion, right? And sexually awakening in your adolescence is confusing. And he, I think he illustrates that really well. However, it is on the exploitative side a bit. And as a, as a female anime fan and someone consuming this, how was that for you? Is it an issue? Look, this one's an interesting one because you could argue you're looking at it through the eyes of a protagonist who is a teenager. Yes. And you're kind of seeing... So I, I could find, for me, a lot of anime, obviously, I have a lot of issues with with that kind of, yeah, sexualization of particularly young women. Yes. Um, in this show, obviously, there's a lot of things that I wouldn't be like, yay, but also <laughs> I do think that because it is Shinji's mind and we're doing this, it's not kind of in a way that the audience is like, oh, this is a good thing. They're kind of like oh, this is kind of a bit uncomfortable and confusing, which I guess, uh, you know, becoming a teenager and realising her own sexual desires is kind of like that and a bit messy. One thing is that with Eva is it does fall into the trope of the harem, but yeah. with everything you've kind of sold to me now and I'm now I'm kind of like, actually, he was kind of introducing the otaku kind of like tropes and then subverting. So it makes sense to have had that, even though it's a little bit jarring to watch, particularly with Misato or that kind of stuff. yeah. She, that's all, I don't, I can't spoil stuff, but she's a bit of an older character interacting with a much younger character. It's a little bit uncomfortable at times for that, but I don't think it's necessarily selling it like this is how it should be, or mm. we're allowed to sexualize teenagers. It's just sort of showing a protagonist who is that age and how he's not in the best headspace and he's having a time and that's what we're all viewing. So I can't argue for or against it really, but that's kind of my two sons on how I justify watching Neon Genesis Evangelion from that perspective, does that make sense? Totally, totally, totally. Yeah, I mean, I'll never defend anime fan service. It's my least, uh, least yeah, favorite part too. of it. it. It's certainly one of the things I think I know was wrangling with during his period of depression. My question, Charlie, is do you think that these female characters in Masato and maybe not so much Ray, who's a bit opaque, but Asakura as well, kind of like presenting the trope of the of the harem, but then showing these very flawed, traumatised, real people that can't save Shinji, or is it still just floating too, too much on the surface? No, I think that they actually are incredibly, like, well-fleshed-out characters and they do subvert it in the end. I think it is successful in that way. I think it does take a while to get there, and you could argue that Masato's storyline is always, she's always kind of controlled by men around her. Absolutely. Um, but I do think that... That might also, you could also argue that's sort of a point <laughs> that they're trying to make, but I'm not quite sure. I think that maybe there could be. Masada's one of my favorite ca characters in the whole of anime. I said like five times on this podcast, I like modeled my life around her, which is bad because <laughs> she's an alcoholic. But <laughs> she's a cool one. So much. It's one of those things where, yeah, like if you really were to read into it and study her character, she definitely wouldn't pass the Bechdel test in any way, no. shape, or form. I wouldn't say Evangelion is a feminist masterpiece. No. But I don't think it's trying to not, I think it's trying to be something entirely different. So. Totally. I don't think anime in general is a, is a feminist masterpiece, but it's no. the... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. i just got a little quote here. It won't be quite as dramatic as my last one, but from Anno on this topic, where he says, you need to understand that Japanese animation is an industry that is, for the most part, male. And as is quite evident, everything is made for their gratification. Animation is on certain points very close to the pornography industry. All your physical needs are met. You can watch different animations and find anything you desire. 
And for a period of time, actually, Gainax in the early days when they were trying to stay afloat, actually made kind of semi-hentai PC games. I think it's something that he struggled with. And actually, the, the show you mentioned before... Gunbuster. Gunbuster, also young female characters, did straddle the, the line of exploitation there, much heavier than Evangelion did. Yeah. He didn't write that. He only directed it. It was a different writer within Gainax. But yeah, something that I think he struggled with. And yes, there are some icky moments, especially at the end of Evangelion, the movie. But I think he does a pretty good job of, of handling it pretty fairly. And as you're saying, it's a, especially in the 90s, it was a different time. And it was a little bit less woke and progressive than perhaps it is today. Yeah. And I think he does a pretty good job of not letting it descend into exploitation. Yeah. But there are elements there which I think, you know, you may have to be a little bit aware of to to forgive or move past. I think that Shinji is such a criticized protagonist as well. So it's not like we're kind of sold like he's the right thing to do. He's kind of so you could argue that that's a way to kind of get around it in terms of how they've presented it. But you're right, it is it does err on the side of extreme sexualization, which I've never been comfortable with, but I do think that the the overall storytelling of Evangelion does makes it worth a watch through that lens a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I think what was telling is that one of the big art movements out of Japan in the thousands was Takashi Murakami's super flat yes. art movement, which was all about the infantile nature of what what was the social response to Japan post-World War II and the occupation of America. And his mission was to take low art and make it high art, low art being otaku culture. Yes. And he interacts very heavily with Ano and with Neon Genesis and Shinji in particular. And through the lens for him, Neon Genesis in that context was a, was a quite a victory. Yes. Um, but, you know, work in progress always. Absolutely. I mean, you could look at it that Shinji actually, all of the people who are kind of have power over him and are trying to kind of teach him, he's like the worst of his job out of a whole pile of females. You could spin it that way if you wanted to in terms of how he, but yeah, I mean, I'm not sure I'd go there. I can't talk about it more without spoiling the whole storyline. Yeah. <laughs> I'll totally deep dive into it, but I'm kind of like, you could view it like that, but there's still a lot of work to be done everywhere in every medium yeah. from every topic. That's true. Yeah. So as a, a final roll around, what's, what's your pitch to people, Sam, about why watch Neon Genesis? Like what's the moment that sticks out for you? The elevator scene to me encapsulates everything that I love about that show. Obviously, I love reading philosophy. I'm a, I'm a big sort of philosophy buff and I, I love existentialism, particularly the French existentialist post-World War II. So this kind of stuff's right up my alley. But it's very easy for this kind of thing to disappear up its own ass, mm -hmm. you know? And a lot of the times when, when animes or any show tries to weave too much philosophy into something, they end up just totally missing the point and, and, and abandoning the story for the worse. Whereas I think what I love about this piece is that it manages to weave philosophy, psychology, and drama together quite perfectly. And sure, it's not without its flaws, obviously, which will be debated till the day the earth ceases to exist or humanity stops. But it is, to me, one of the best executions of a philosophical and psychological high concept. And I just think it's one of the best things I've ever seen. So by episode three, you're like, whoa, bro. <laughs> Should we be exterminated? You know, <laughs> are we the bad guys here? Is God trying to... You know? It's a fun time. Yeah, but honestly, as a gateway people, yes, it's, it's, like, it's quite an intense watch. It's not necessarily going to be a fun time, but I think you're going to grow as a person to watch it. There's a reason it is what it is and why it's so revered and you'll then see its influence fucking everywhere mm. because... And it's funny when you go back and watch these highly influential pieces of art 
And you sort of like, oh, I've seen that before. It's like, yeah, because of this. This is what influenced everything else after it. You yeah. know? I'd argue we've gone backwards. Like it's more advanced than the monoculture that we're getting in the West at the moment. Marvel Definitely. would never make a movie like Neon Genesis. No. Yeah, maybe they should. Remember yeah. they tried Pacific Rim? Oh. Where it's like, they're not coming from the sky. They're coming from the ocean. <laughs> but like the same thing, just Tempest without. It was like yeah. the Neon Genesis was just the mecha anime yeah. that some of the fans wanted it to be yes. with Pacific Rim. Absolutely. Yeah, but what if no characters? Question mark. <laughs> <laughs> that always works. Well, look, thank you very much, Gerald, for coming down and talking. No, my pleasure. That was about fun. Neon Genesis. So much fun. And those of you out there who haven't seen it, do yourself a favor, jump on Netflix, get on into it and enjoy the ride. For those of you who have seen it, I hope you learned a couple of things. Or if you disagree with anything that we've said, you know, jump on, jump online and let's have a chat. I'm always, always keen to chat about these things. So thank you very much. And we'll see you all next time. <laughs> <laughs>